What is greatness? How does one gauge grandeur or define divinity? Can you evaluate the essence of excellence? Is majesty merely a measure of might, power, prestige or popularity? Can splendor simply be summed up by social status? Or might there be something more creative than the canned conclusion our culture has come to? Who could demonstrate a life defining true greatness? Who might elevate above the awe of angels, look beyond the limits of the law, and transcend the truth of Torah? Who might move beyond the miracles of Moses and precede the prized promised land? Who might surpass the position of the priests modeling the immorality of Melchizedek? Whose sacrifice could solidify sustaining sanctification? Whose covenant could fully capture the criteria of perfection? Who can transmit transformation through trust, fabricate faithfulness, and bring life that multiplies life from dust? This is the book of Hebrews. What is happening, Mosaic? If this is your first week with us, my name is Renaud Vanderet. I'm the lead pastor here at Mosaic. You guys are blowing my cover. <laughs> no, my name is Josh Taylor. I'm one of the elders here, lay elder, which means I'm not on staff um, here, but Renaud called me two days ago and uh, he said, uh, and it was very clear to me that he had just smoked an entire case of Marlboro Reds. So if you were here last week, you know exactly why he's not here today. He called me two days ago and he said, hey, so what's happening? <laughs> so I need you to preach on Sunday. I said, what? <laughs> two days? No way. That ain't happening. But God whispered to me, and it's an incredible thing when the creator of the universe talks to you. And he said, Josh, if this church thing is just a Netflix subscription where we pay some dues, we come here to consume and have a concert played for us, and where we get to hear an inspiring message to launch us into our week, if that's what church is, we're in a whole lot of trouble. But if church is family, brothers and sisters united as the body of Christ, then we have an incredible opportunity this morning to make much of Jesus together and be able to say to Renault, man, rest your voice. And say to Brady, go be with your wife for your anniversary. And say to Joel, dude, be home with this beautiful brand new baby girl. We have an incredible opportunity together, you and I, to make much of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's go and do that. So uh, I do want to say thank you as somebody that's not on staff. I want to say thank you to the staff of Mosaic. We have an incredible staff that loves you 
so well. This is not a job for them. It's not just a job for them. They actually care about equipping the saints. And from the tech to creative, to kids, to students, to all of them, they're all, they all work so hard. So yes, if you would, let's say thank you to the staff here. They do such a great job. So we are gonna be in the book of Hebrews. If you have been with us for a while, you know that we have been journeying through the Bible. We started in Genesis back in the early 1900s. And we're getting close to the end, but we still got a few more decades to go. So we've been journeying and journeying and journeying, and we're in the book of Hebrews right now. Um, It's towards the end of the Bible, getting close to Revelation. If you've gone to Revelation, you went too far. Um, But Hebrews is a unique book. It's an incredible book. So God really gifted us this morning where we get to make much of Jesus together because I don't know that there's a better passage in all of scripture that makes much of Jesus in the passage that we are going to be in today in Hebrews chapter one. There's two really key things when it comes to understanding Hebrews and understanding what the author intended when he wrote the book of Hebrews. Number one is context. And they tell you in seminary, context is king. Context is vital to understanding all of scripture. But context, especially in the book of Hebrews, is really vital to understand. Because otherwise you'll read some things and you're like, whoa, that sounds kind of weird. And that's a little scary. But then when you understand how this fits into the big picture, it makes all kinds of incredible sense. And it is an extraordinary book. So imagine I was going to write a book and I wrote it about baseball bats, right? But I just titled it Bats. Right? And then I hand this book to a cave dweller who's never left the cave in 60 years of his life. And he's reading, and of course he understands bats as flying rodents, right? But he reads this and he says, wow, bats that are made out of wood? Bats that are made out of aluminum? That's weird. Bats that are three and a half feet long? That's scary, right? So you gotta understand the context of where we are. And with Hebrews, it's not just the context of the surrounding words around that book. It's also the historical context And so I want to kind of unpack that for you just a little bit. Renaud went into a longer introduction of this book last week, but I want to help us understand what we're about to launch into. So historical context. Number one, this was, as Renaud mentioned last week, this book was written in the 60s, right? Who remembers who was uh, emperor of Rome in the 60s? Nero. That's exactly right. Not the 1960s. Whoa, I love the 60s, dude. No, this is the actual 60s. So Nero, Nero was an evil tyrant dictator. I mean, evil. And he hated Christians. So the temptation for these Jewish Christians to leave Christianity was extraordinarily high. And they went through really hard stuff. And I'm not talking about like what we might go through when our air condition breaks down and we're like, oh, I'm afflicted. I'm talking about like torturing murdering your family in front of you. I'm talking about stuff that makes the Nazis look like Barney. I'm talking bad stuff, legitimate bad stuff, right? So let me back up now and give you a little bit of context. Two centuries prior to Jesus, those couple of centuries leading up to Jesus. Have you heard of the Maccabees before? So the family was the Hasmonean family, but their nickname was the Maccabees because they were spicy. They were, they, what happened with Rome, whenever they conquered a new territory, the reason why there's so many Roman gods is every time they conquered a new territory, they would just roll that God right into their pantheon of gods, right? And they also expected people to worship Caesar as God. And the Jews as monotheists 
Deuteronomy 6, there's only one God. They weren't having it. And the Hasmoneans were spicy. They were willing to fight. And they were kind of the precursor for the zealots that we see in the New Testament. And these guys were like ninja training, you know, constantly uh, learning to fight so that when the military Messiah would come in, they would be ready to join forces and fight and overthrow the oppressive government and rule the world with God. So we kind of see this a little bit at Jesus' crucifixion, right? Because Pontius Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus. But the, the Jews were getting stirred up. Man, and remember, they're a spicy bunch. We don't want them creating a stink, right? So Pontius Pilate crucified Jesus just to kind of keep them at bay, to keep them quiet. So now picture yourself as a Jewish Christian in this time where as a Christian, it's very difficult to live right now. And it's very tempting to go back to the safety net of Judaism. Now, granted, they were still under the oppression of Rome, but they had a little bit of kind of autonomy because of how spicy they were in the centuries leading up. So the temptation to leave Christianity was extraordinary. Now, <clears throat> there are some warning passages in the book of Hebrews um, that can be kind of scary to read, but I call them encouragement passages. It's the author of Hebrews, the entire purpose of the book is to help them understand, hey, guys, hang in. There's nothing to go back to. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And when you read the book of Hebrews and study the book of Hebrews, it's an incredible thing because it's like these magic glasses and goggles that you can put on. And when you read the Old Testament and you see what is, a, what is gonna unfold, it's the climax of everything in the Old Testament and it all points to Jesus. And now you go back and read the Old Testament with the goggles of Hebrews on and it's like, whoa, it comes alive in an incredible way that is magnificent. So when, you, when we talk about these things pointing to Jesus, I wanna give you a little bit of an illustration here. Scripture talks about in, in Hebrews, later on in Hebrews, we're gonna read that the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of things to come. So picture for a minute, the stage is a timeline. That's the beginning of creation and down here is heaven. And this is uh, in Revelation, it talks about how there is not gonna be a sun because the glory of God is gonna light the entire place, right? So now picture that light shining back in history, right? Back in time, if you will, to this moment at the cross right here. It is now casting a shadow back that way. Are you with me? That shadow pointed to Jesus the entire time. The author of Hebrews is saying, man, there's nothing to go back to. This is just a shadow. This is where it's at right here. So hang in there. It matters. It really matters. So context is one. Second thing that's super important to understand uh, what the author of Hebrews is intending to communicate to us or what God is intending to communicate us. As Renaud mentioned it last week, you have to keep in mind the forest uh, from the trees, right? Because you can easily get lost in the corn maze uh, because just about every other passage is a quote of the Old Testament. And so to really understand it and study it, you gotta constantly chase down these quotes to find out what was being taught in the Old Testament so that you can understand what the author of Hebrews is saying. Well, you can get lost in that real easy. So it's important from time to time to send the drone up and grab, grab the big picture shot so that we can see what is happening. You with me? All right, so I wanna look at the forest of the whole book first. If you'll put that slide up pretty please. The entire point of the author of Hebrews and what he's trying to communicate in this book is that Jesus is greater. 
And so we're gonna follow that entire thing, that concept through this book. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Torah, greater than Moses. He's greater than the promised land. He's greater than the priest. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he's greater than the old covenant because it all pointed to him anyway. And now let me give you the context of the passage that we're gonna be in today. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter one, verses three through 14. So a little chunk of scripture there. So as we kind of chase down these passages, keep this in mind. Jesus is the heir of David. We see that in verse five. The next verses six through 12, Jesus is God. And then verse 13, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the forest we need to keep in mind as we dive into the weeds here a bit. So I'm gonna read the passage so we can kind of take in the entire context here in the forest. Starting in verse three, Uh, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of all the, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, right, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So to help us understand a little bit about how angels were uh, participated in the story of God and how we can uh, understand the context of what the Jews thought about the angels at the time, they would elicit fear from people. Whenever the angels came in, the Old and New Testament, whenever they came in, people said, whoa, these are scary dudes. I mean, these are like warriors in the spiritual warfare. Like these are mighty, big, scary looking things, right? Luke chapter one, verses 11, 13. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. This is Zechariah as he's giving birth to, uh, his wife is giving birth to John the Baptist. An angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Luke chapter two. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Love it when Linus reads that passage. So an angel is just, it simply means its literal translation is messenger. When we think of evangelism, uh, it's just a messenger of a good news. So an angel is just a messenger of God. So in In the book of Hebrews, the author is saying that Jesus is superior to all the ways, all the previous messengers of God in the past. Renaud talked about that um, powerfully last week. So he's going to begin to make the case that Jesus is better. So we're going to pick up in verse 5. Jesus is the heir of David. 
Now, it's really important to understand that God regularly uses the things in the created world to teach us the story that he is writing to help us understand what he's accomplishing in the spiritual world, which is harder to understand. So he uses the created to teach us about these spiritual things. So with the uh, families in that context, the firstborn would become the heir of all of the possessions of the family, right? They were the one who received everything. And so Jesus is being compared to the heir of David, the one who's gonna receive all of the things, is gonna inherit everything in the end. So listen to what uh, the Hebrews, author of Hebrews says in verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, there's that heir uh, language there, Today I have begotten you. That's from Psalm chapter two. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's from 2 Samuel chapter seven. So Jesus is the heir, the ultimate and final heir of all things. And as we follow Jesus, we get to inherit all of that, which is just an extraordinary mind-blowing concept. Next, the author of Hebrews does this kind of mic drop thing because he's about to talk about how Jesus is better than Moses, right? But if Jesus is just a dude and they say, hey, Jesus is better than Moses, they're gonna, you're gonna have some argument back and forth on that. Well, I don't know, maybe, is he? I don't know, is he? But the author of Hebrews says, no, Jesus is God. Mic drop. He's better than Moses. Verse six, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, if you were in the audience hearing that letter being read, that would be like the record scratch, right? The music, everything stops and everybody's like, what? What did he just say? Everybody worship him? We only worship God. We don't do that. Deuteronomy chapter five. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Revelation chapter 22, John is the author of that book. And this is a crazy thing. I mean, this guy gets swept into heaven to kind of see all the stuff that's happening in the spiritual realm. And it was just mind blowing, crazy stuff that John got to see. And he writes this at the end of the book of Revelation. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. So the fact that Jesus, uh, that worship was ascribed to Jesus was a very clear message that Jesus is God. He is worthy of all power and dominion and glory. And then he does this incredible thing next where he compares the angels to Jesus. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's a quote from Psalm 104. But... Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, up, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is about the Son. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That is from Psalm 
45. When you go back and read Psalm 45, that is a very clear passage about God. The author of Hebrews is very clearly saying Jesus is God. Next, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. You laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's from Psalm 102. Who made the heavens and the earth? Very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. It's a very clear, direct statement that Jesus is God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was? He was in the beginning with God, and, and all things were made through him, all things. And without him, not anything was made that has been made. In other words, anything created was made by Jesus. Jesus was not created. He is eternal. Philippians chapter 2. Love this passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is how much God has loved us and what he did for us. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' name is the name that is above every name. There is no name greater than God. And Jesus has the name that is above every name. He is worthy. Next, the author says, he is the Messiah. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's directly out of Psalm 110. It's a commonly used passage quoted to refer to the Messiah. So he's the heir of David. He is God and he is the Messiah, the sent one of the Father. And then this last verse is extraordinary. If you've been falling asleep, now's the time to wake up. <clears throat> verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Talking about the angels. Who is to inherit salvation? We are. The angels are a gift from God to serve us. What? That's crazy. We have this entire army of warriors in the spiritual warfare created to help serve us in this battle of becoming who God has made us to be. That's amazing. So they're a gift from God, but we do not worship the created. We only worship the creator. Are you with me? 
They're a gift from God. Think about it this way. Suppose I were to go out and I wanted to really uh, tell my wife, Kelly, that I loved her. So I went and I found this incredible ring and I went and bought her some flowers. And I didn't just go to Publix or Walmart to buy flowers. I traveled the globe to find the rarest flowers on the planet and made the most extraordinary bouquet of flowers that you've ever seen. And I set them in front of her to give to her to say, I love you. And then at that point, she starts worshiping the ring and the flowers and saying, I don't need you. I want more of this. Give me this, 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 this. The gift is an expression of love, but it's not where we get life. Life is only in Christ. Listen to what Romans chapter one said as Paul wrote, Therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So every human that has ever lived, this is the choice that Adam and Eve had in the garden to make a simple choice to trust that God is enough by himself to satisfy my soul or to go and seek abundant life in the created things of the world, which effectively puts myself on the throne and says, God, I don't need you. I'm gonna go find abundant life in all this other stuff out here. Yet God created the garden and gifted them with so much. And I don't have time to go into details, but I'm a farmer and I'm picturing in my head the trees and how extraordinary they would have been covered in fruit and flowers of amazing colors. I mean, it would have just been so stunningly beautiful, right? But God says, don't worship these things. So I'm gonna give you a choice. Just don't eat the fruit from this tree. You got all this stuff to live in and enjoy. Just don't eat this one. You ever wonder why you got the tree of life, but the opposite wasn't the tree of death? It's the tree of knowledge, right? Why? Because knowledge is about control, right? What happens when, when we go through something hard and our life circumstances are hard? What do we ask? Why, God? Why did that happen? We want to know. We want to know. We want to know. Because if I know that I can control everything, I can make it all work out the way that I think it should work out. Simple choice to trust that God's enough to satisfy my soul or to seek abundant life in the created. So creator versus created. That is the choice that we all face and that we face right now today. And this is the gift of the book of Ecclesiastes to the church. I remember early in my walk with Christ, I, I read the book of Ecclesiastes. And I was like, this book is depressing. It's awful. But it now might be my favorite book in the entire Bible. And the reason why, <laughs> because we all have this idea in our head that we fill in this sentence with, and we say, if I just had this house, this wife, this car, these kids, this job, this whatever, whatever you fill in that blank, if I had that, then I would have, I would have joy. I would be happy. My soul would be satisfied. Whatever you put in that sentence, if it's not God, it's an idol. And it cannot satisfy your soul. It's not possible. So the, who's the author of Ecclesiastes. Solomon. Thank you. So Solomon, here's a dude that God allowed to have all of those things. Whatever you would fill in that sentence with, he had it practically. 
He had power and money and women and all kinds of things. I mean, he had it, everything we could possibly imagine and fill in that sentence with. And his conclusion at the end of that, this is meaningless. It's a vapor. It's hevel is the Greek, excuse me, the Hebrew word there. It means like chasing after smoke. Have you ever tried to chase and catch smoke? The harder you try, the worse, it, the further away it gets. You can't grasp a hold of it. And I've known so many people in this world that have achieved so many things and gotten so much wealth and they get to the end of it. It's like, man, I love this house. It's a great pool, but wouldn't it be awesome if it had a water fountain? Then I'd be happy. Oh man, what if I just had a boat dock right out there? Then I'd be happy. Then you get the boat dock. Oh man, if I just had that boat, my neighbor's got an incredible boat. If I had that boat, then I'd be happy. Get off the hamster wheel. Stop worshiping the ring and the flowers. God is right here. The creator of the universe wants to hang out with you. That's incredible. That's incredible. The creator of the universe wants to hang out with you. That's the choice that we have in front of us. This is the gospel story, right? And the gospel story hangs on four pegs. I I like to tell it this way. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God made us. He made us to walk in intimate relationship with him. He gave us that simple choice. Trust that I'm enough. It wasn't enough for Adam and Eve. They said, ooh, that's some shiny, good-looking fruit. We'll have life in that. So they said, God, we don't need you. I got this, right? So they fell. That's the fall. So God made them for relationship. They chose themselves to put themselves on the throne to trust that they had it, that God, they didn't need God. But God didn't just kick them out and say, ah, heck with y'all, I don't need you anymore. He has been pursuing humanity since that time. So creation, fall, redemption, this is an incredible story because Isaiah says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all on Jesus. By the way, that was written centuries before Jesus, pointing to Jesus' very clear passage. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith, that it's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God, not by works so that we can't boast. So God, even in how he saved us, protects us from our selfish pride and saving us in a way that we can't take the credit for it. There's nobody in heaven that's gonna be bragging about how good they were to get there. It's by grace, his grace alone, not by our own works. It's the gift of God. There's two really important things about a gift. Number one, if I gave that ring to my wife and she said, oh, let me pay for it, let me pay you for it. And she takes out her wallet. Even if she gives me a dollar, it's no longer a gift. It's a really cheap purchase, but it's not a gift anymore. The second thing about a gift is we have to actually receive that gift. And the same author Paul writes to the Romans in chapter three says that we receive that gift through faith. It's trusting God, it's trusting in him but it doesn't stop there. So we have creation, fall, redemption, and the last is restoration, right? That, that when we trust in him, it's not just a ticket, our free ticket to heaven, 
right? Abundant life, eternal life isn't, doesn't just start somewhere in the future. It starts right here and right now. He's created us for a purpose, for an incredible purpose. You and I crave significance. We want our life to be meaningful. We want to matter. And God restored all of that. And God is good, is he not? And would you say that it's going to be better in heaven than it is on earth? So why in God's goodness, if he's all powerful and all loving, doesn't he just snatch us up to heaven the immediate, uh, the second that we trust in him? Because he's restored, he's got us here for a purpose, for significance, for a reason. Our entire purpose, you and I, everybody in here, our purpose is to know God and to make him known to others. And so the author of, uh, of Paul, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter two, it's by grace that we're saved through faith. And then he continues on in verse 10. He says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is our restored purpose. Your life matters to the kingdom of God. You matter to the kingdom of God. Er matters and so do you, right? That was a Christmas series if you were with us back then. So is the created stuff bad? No, God made it and he said it's good. But the instant we start worshiping those things and thinking that there's life in them, it's not, it's a gift. It's an expression of God saying, I love you. Enjoy these things. Let's hang out. So let's go hang out with God. So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm begging you today, don't walk out of this building without surrendering your life to him because you are gonna continue in this hamster wheel of trying to find life in the created things of the world. You're gonna continue grasping after that smoke and you're never gonna get it. And you're gonna look back and you're gonna want, you're gonna hate that you wasted so much of your life. How many of you have seen a bad movie before? Man, we're furious when that happens, right? I just wasted two hours of my life. That was an entire waste of time. We're so upset by that. Yet we'll waste years of our life not fulfilling our created purpose to walk an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. Don't leave today without surrendering your life to Christ. We're gonna have some people, some leaders over against the wall at the end of our service. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Jesus and you're ready to surrender your life to him, please come talk to one of those leaders today. I'm gonna close us in prayer. I'm gonna pray the sinner's prayer, which is what we are. And if this echoes in your heart, then today you are a child of God and we wanna help you better understand what that means. So come find one of these leaders and talk to them. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good. Your love is extraordinary. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for loving us the way that you have. And God, everybody in this room, if we're honest, we confess that we have been pursuing life in the shiny fruits of the world. And we're so sorry, God, that we said we don't need you with our actions and possibly even with our words. I cannot fathom knowing what I know now, ever saying that. And yet, even now, there's still times when I think that there might be life in something. So God, please forgive me. I am a sinner. I need you. I trust that what you accomplished on the cross on my behalf, dying for me, declaring my worth and value on the cross was enough to rescue me from my selfishness. 
And God, I'm ready for a restored purpose. I'm ready for my life to truly matter. And so I surrender it all to you. I'm ready to follow you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name.